This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Genocide Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Jeff Bachman, a senior lecturer at the American University School of International Service and a Genocide Studies scholar. Thank you all for listening. Today, I'll be talking to Shell Anderson and Aaron Jesse about their important new edited volume, Researching Perpetrators of Genocide, published by University of Wisconsin Press in December 2020 for its Critical Human Rights series. Shell and Aaron, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeff. Can the two of you start us off by telling our listeners a bit about yourselves and how you came to perpetrate a research? Was it because of the gap in the research and literature, something else, or some combination? Uh, I think actually I became interested in perpetrators partly through taking a course from, from Fred Grunfeld at Utrecht University in 2004, which was on the causes of gross human rights violations. And I had some interest in genocide, but that really introduced me to the whole social psychological literature on genocide and on perpetrators. And then I worked for a human rights NGO in Rwanda in 2007 with victims of uh, genocide. And just hearing these people's stories made me, uh, made me very interested in, in finding out who had actually done these things to these people and what could we understand about it. And as for as for me, um, I actually came to genocide studies through um, forensic archaeology. I'd um, done an undergraduate and master's degree um, that focused on mass graves resulting from human rights violations, and that sort of led me to have a um, an interest in you know sort of the the human consequences of these kinds of things, um, and specifically you know not just talking to survivors, but then trying to go for a more comprehensive understanding of these conflicts that included insights from the people who actually perpetrated this violence um, to help me better understand why people might choose to participate in this violence and how it impacted their lives long term um, as sort of a way of, of um, shifting the, the narrative burden away from solely focusing on survivors. And, and, and how did the chapters that you included in the volume come together? Um, well, in a lot of ways, this has been... Um, a long sort of work in progress for us. Um, the the initial idea actually came from conversations uh, I was having back when I was a postdoctoral fellow at the University of British Columbia with an Israeli scholar um, and colleague of mine, Tal Nizan. Um, we had both in different ways really struggled, you know, in, in the sort of analysis phase of our research projects with grappling with these really difficult stories that we'd heard from people who perpetrated different kinds of violence. And so um, that prompted us to organize a panel for the American Anthropological Association meeting in 2013. And that then led to a workshop um, at the University of British Columbia in 2014, um, which Shell attended and, and made contributions to. And the 
the papers from that workshop eventually came out as a special issue of conflict in society in 2015, but it was really taking a much broader approach, um, looking at perpetrators, not just of genocide, but of a whole variety of kinds of, of political violence. Um, and so Shell and I started talking about, you know, how much the field of genocide studies needed similar work in this area. Uh, and so, you know, from there, the kind of idea was born and, and we just started working working toward creating an edited volume by um, sending out a call for papers to try and attract scholars. Um, and we wanted it to be interdisciplinary um, and we wanted it to be written by people who were working in or who were from different contexts that have been affected by genocide. I don't know if there's anything there you'd want to add, Sean. Uh, no, I think that covers it pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Was there, uh, you know, I'm sure there were certain parameters for, for the, the length of the volume. Or was there anything sort of left on the quote-unquote cutting room floor that, um, that you would have liked to have seen included? I mean, that's an interesting one because something Aaron and I talked about a lot and, and really tried to have included in the, in the volume was something on North America. And that's something that we definitely feel is missing from the volume. And I think the absence of North America is also interesting. And I think one of the reasons why some of the scholars who work on, for example, residential school system were reluctant to be in the volume was just sensitivities around the use of the term perpetrator. You know, for example, if you're a teacher in a residential school, assuming that you're not actually involved in direct physical abuse in these kinds of things, does that make you a perpetrator? That's kind of an open-ended question, but I, I think it did illustrate some of the sensitivities around that label. So I, I think both of us wish that we could have had a case from North America in there, but maybe maybe next time around. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Sorry, Aaron. Oh, no, just agreeing. It's all good. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a... You know, I, I wanted to just talk about uh, an acknowledgement in your book. Uh, you did dedicate this volume to, to Leanne Fuji. Can you talk about Leanne's legacy and how your research has been influenced by it? Yeah, I mean, um, for, for those listeners who maybe aren't familiar with Leanne Fuji's work, um, she was a really leading um, political scientist um, who unfortunately passed away now a few years ago at a, at a fairly young age. Um, but she was doing all of this really sort of cutting edge work on um, Rwanda is, I think, probably one of the things she's most known for. But in recent years, she'd also gone on to work on Bosnia and also to look at um, lynchings and things like that that happened um, in the 20th century in the United States. Um, and Leanne was somebody who I think for a lot of people who were doing this kind of really intensive qualitative research on, on genocide and, and other kinds of mass atrocities was really um, kind of an important touchstone in the community because not only was she doing great research on Rwanda, but she also had this tendency to write about and talk about the story behind the findings in ways that I think a lot of us struggled to struggle to do. Um, and I mean, I first met her in Bosnia in 2008 when I was still a doctoral researcher and I was really struggling with how to represent and, and write about some of the narratives people had shared with me and, and some of the fieldwork experiences that I'd had where I felt like, 
you know, there just wasn't space in academic settings to, to have these conversations without potentially um, putting yourself at risk of reputational damage or, you know, putting the people that you'd worked with at risk of, of reputational damage, these kinds of things. Um, and so for me, Leanne, and, and there were a couple of others at this time as well, who were really leaders in bringing these stories to the forefront and integrating them into the work that they were doing in ways that actually helped to enhance the findings, um, you know, produce greater transparency and, and things like that um so yeah i mean in, in many ways she was just a really important mentor i think for for a lot of folks working in in the field of genocide studies and on other kinds of political violence um and yeah her her loss um her death a few years ago was um yeah just i mean a huge loss for a number of people personally but also an, an enormous loss for um sort of studies of, of political violence more generally so we felt it was important to to dedicate this volume to her, seeing as you know, in many ways, she'd been she'd been part of the early conversations and and research that both of us have been doing um, in preparation for our own field work, and then in writing about you know what we had learned as well. If I can just add, I mean, I, I think that Leanne was was really a model scholar. I mean, she kind of did all the things that you should do as a scholar, and as as Aaron said, her research was really thoughtful, really nuanced, really reflective, where the methodology wasn't just something that you do before you do research, uh, but it was really integral to the results you produce. And I think she was, uh, she produced really deep data from qualitative research. And she, at the same time, she wasn't too precious about methods in the sense that she was very transparent and very pragmatic about how you do things, but always always keeping in mind, of course, power relationships and uh, protecting people involved in your research. Thank you both. Uh, and what you just brought up does connect to, I think, a couple of other important issues, um, both on um, methodology, but also the potent, potential backlash um, from doing purpose trader research. So I was wondering whether either of you have faced such a backlash and also, what are the ethical and methodological challenges associated with qualitative re perpetrator research? Uh, why has the gap in research on perpetrators largely persisted? And have how have the ethical and methodological challenges you identified show themselves in perpetrator research? Well, I mean, this I question of a gap. Question. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, <laughs> the question of a gap is an interesting one because I, th I think the gap is starting to be filled. I mean, that there's been a kind of recent influx of research on perpetrators, but I mean, I think the gap might be partly due to, I mean, perhaps normative discomfort in the sense that dealing with people who have committed atrocious violence can be uncomfortable. Uh, and uh, as you said, it might also engender backlash in some circumstances. I think on a practical level, perpetrator research can often be difficult just in terms of the need for many scholars to, to travel to other contexts and contexts that are, you know, either in the midst of conflict or, or in the immediate post-war, post-atrocity period. So, I mean, I think a lot of the challenges arise from those contexts. I think there's also been an understandable desire to identify with victims, which has informed the whole field of genocide studies, going back, of course, to Holocaust studies uh, in prior years. And obviously that's understandable, but th th it does feel like there's this missing piece of the literature on genocide, which which kind of ignores the perpetrator, although that's starting to get filled in, I think. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I know certainly when I started working in genocide studies, it seemed like the vast majority of the literature that was being produced um, 
really did focus on sort of survivors and, and international bystanders or witnesses, this kind of thing. And I mean, that's, that's wonderful. That can inform all sorts of research questions, but there are also certain research questions that you, you can't maybe reliably answer um, without speaking to perpetrators. And I think especially when, you know, we see ourselves as scholars and practitioners who are committed to things like genocide prevention or promoting, you know, justice, whatever that might look like for, for different contexts and so on. Um, there, there are certain conversations that need to be had that can really only be fully informed by by talking to people about you know how they get drawn into this violence um, and and you know what it means to them how it affects them and so on um, you you just you can't get these insights from solely talking to perpetrators and first responders and so on because they they often don't know the full picture of why you know people were drawn into violence and and these kinds of things um, they might have you know opinions about it but but you know, how, how reliable or how accurate those might be for different kinds of actors, different kinds of perpetrators in particular can be, um, you know, questioned. Um, regarding this issue of the backlash, though, um, I, I do think that this is a challenge, um, especially where people are doing you know, this in-depth qualitative research with perpetrators. Um, and I've noticed this particularly within sort of academic and professional circles. I mean, there are definitely researchers and, and some members of the public who feel very strongly that it's inappropriate to provide people who've been identified as perpetrators with a platform um, to talk about their crimes, to justify their crimes, um, and especially then where they might use this platform to espouse, you know, hate speech and conspiracy theories and these kinds of things. Um, and likewise, there, there are a lot of people um, who I've encountered over the years who are, are you know, made visibly uncomfortable by you know, this possibility that, you know, some perpetrators might not be these kinds of monsters that, that society presents them as, but actually could be, you know, quite ordinary people because they don't like the idea that that means that, you know, almost anybody could could be, you know, given the right circumstances, a perpetrator of genocide. Um, so, you know, these are, I think when we work with, with perpetrators, these are these are issues that we always have to be quite mindful of. Um, and we have to make sure when we're when we're talking about these kinds of things that we aren't inadvertently um, reinforcing, you know, reprehensible political agendas or personal agendas. Um, that we're not talking about these people to to audiences who maybe would find their narratives, you know, offensive. Or that if we do, we're very careful about contextualizing those narratives and explaining where they're maybe not historically accurate or, um, yeah, you know, the the other kinds of. Um, challenging agendas that can be presented in this kind of world. So did you want to add anything to that about the backlash or? Yeah, I mean, I think that that governments, of course, are often reluctant to allow people to do perpetrator research because it might not fit the narrative that comes out of a transitional justice process or just out of a kind of an official history. So I think sometimes perpetrator narratives can, can challenge that kind of story and they're reticent. Thank you. And um, you mentioned transitional justice, and um, it actually re- brings me back to what you said about um, perpetrated research in, in North America, and in particular the treatment of, of indigenous peoples. Um, you know, I, I do wonder. There's been, you know, a, a lack of trans- transitional um, methods employed. I think overall in in the North American context, although of course there has been some progress. I think um, in that regards in Canada, um, but. You know, I guess, how is perpetrator research important for transitional justice? And, and is it relevant primarily for restorative or re- reparative justice? Or might it also have something to tell us about retributive justice 
And, and have you ever gotten the impression that in the legal realm, that perpetrator research is primarily an academic pursuit and that justice, especially retributive, does not have space to take into account perpetrator complexities? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm writing a book right now on Dominic Nguyen, who's somebody who was, just by way of example, who's somebody who was, who was abducted as a child by the Lord's Resistance Army, of course, this rebel group in northern Uganda, which is led by Joseph Kony. And uh, he's currently on trial for war crimes and crimes against humanity at the International Criminal Court. So the reason I mention that is that this case, I think, really encapsulates a lot of these complexities, because I think it's apparent to anybody who's observed the trial or who knows something about his story that he was at one point a victim, certainly, and that he became a perpetrator at some point, although I think there's not a a neat temporal breaking point between when you're a victim on the one hand and then you just shift fully into being a perpetrator, especially when you consider in that context the highly coercive environment and abusive environment of the Lord's Resistance Army. So I think when you transpose that into the adversarial context of a criminal trial, you produce these two completely divergent narratives of his story, neither of which really fully account for what happened to him either as a child, because he wasn't charged with anything from the time he was a child, or before the time he entered into the group. Um, so on the one hand, you have a story of Dominic Nguyen as being a, a highly motivated perpetrator, perhaps a cruel man who stayed in the group for many years because he, uh, because he enjoyed exercising power within that group. On the other hand, there's a narrative of him as being a complete victim, uh, that basically he was abducted and nothing he did afterwards counts. So I think this case kind of encapsulates the difficulties in accounting for that complexity within this adversarial criminal justice context, which tends to produce binaries, and it also tends to maintain a very narrow focus, a kind of tunnel vision, obviously, because it's only dealing with one individual and the specific charges against that individual. Thank you, Shell. Did you want to add anything to that, Erin? Um, no, I mean, not really. I think I think the case of Ongwa nicely demonstrates just how complex uh, perpetrators' experiences can be. And, you know, again, we, we haven't seen the final sort of judgment yet, but, um, yeah, how courts deal with this and how well they can reckon with the complexities of these experiences is really important. But, um, yeah, it remains to be seen, I think, whether um, this, is, this is something that these different transitional justice mechanisms can do effectively in different contexts. I think it's Thank also you, interesting. I, oh, sorry. sorry, Jeff. Uh, I was just going to add that I think it's also interesting to think about perpetrators within the de- how perpetrators are accounted for within this design of transitional justice processes. In some sense, perpetrators, of course, are the subjects of transitional justice, but they're also, in on some level, they're also stakeholders, especially where you have societies where many people were involved directly either in perpetration or perhaps more broadly in collaboration or or even as bystanders, how do you account for that complexity of perpetration within these transitional justice structures, I think is an interesting question and and frankly one that isn't asked very often. Thank you, Shell. And um, this question may come off a little redundant, um, but if you want to add anything to what you've already said, um, you know, I, I noticed in the book that, you know, talk about sort of the binaries and judgmental frames that are used. And um, so I do wonder, can perpetrators 
be humanized or rehumanized without disrupting, uh, you know, the relationship that many want to focus on, which is perpetrator to victim slash survivor. Um, and are there times when this relationship should be disrupted? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think there are perhaps moments where, yes, um, we should be aiming for a more complex understanding of how genocides and related mass atrocities take shape in a society. Um, I mean, one of the things that often came up in the research that I did with um, convicted perpetrators in Rwanda was relates this idea of how they became sort of radicalized to and and motivated to participate in genocide. Um, and often people would cite, you know, their own experiences of feeling victimized or, you know, stories that have been passed down to them by their families um, where, you know, the family members had been, had been victimized and so on. And that this had a bit of an effect, not necessarily on radicalizing people against, you know, the Tutsi in the Rwandan case, but certainly making them quite fearful of this idea of, you know, outsiders coming in and, and taking over the country as it was often framed in the ideology at the time. And so, you know, I think there are moments where we need to talk about the ways in which, you know, people who become perpetrators might also be victims. Um, and likewise, I mean, sometimes it goes beyond that as well. Sometimes these people engage in, in crimes related to the genocide, but simultaneously they act as rescuers, you know, where they know people who are members of the victim group, um, who they have relationships with and so on, or who they feel um, protective towards. You know, they would go out of their way, sometimes at great personal risk, to try to rescue these people or protect them. Um, you you know, and, and I, I think these stories, I mean, obviously they can they can be upsetting to, to listen to, um, especially where people are really committed to this idea of perpetrators as monsters. Um, but at the same time, when we think about social repair, when we think about transitional justice, you know, all of these things that come come along in the aftermath of these kinds of atrocities, um, sometimes I think there's there's moments in these narratives and in these experiences that could actually be really helpful for facilitating social repair. Um, you know, if that's if that's one of the things that we're aiming for in the aftermath of, of these atrocities. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Thank you, Aaron. So did you have anything you would add to that? No, I don't think so. I think Eric answered the question pretty well. Okay, great. <laughs> uh, well, in, in the introduction that the two of you wrote, uh, you describe uh, producing qualitative data as a, as a co-production. With the role of narrative in perpetrator research, what are the performative aspects of perpetrator research? Is it a one-person quote-unquote show, or does the researcher, through their engagement with their interviewees, also quote-unquote perform? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think interviews, I, I don't know if I would use the word performance. I mean, it's an interesting word there. We do borrow from Graham Dawson in talking about composure in our book. I mean, this kind of desire to align a, your personal narrative with, with, with a, an external expectation is, I mean, just to put it very generally. And I think as researchers, obviously, our interviews with perpetrators are shaped by our relationship with the perpetrator. So I think you could have Two different researchers, obviously, interviewing the same person and coming up with quite different results. I think theoretically, you could even have two interviewers asking the same questions and getting different results, depending on 
what they're bringing to the interaction, who they are as a researcher, how they're perceived by the uh, the research subject in this case. And, you know, part of that is is just about, I guess, about identity and how people see you. And part of that is also, I think, about how you ask questions and how you conduct yourself during an interview. I think from the side of the research subject, there is also this attempt to to present themselves well, needless to say. I mean, we're both trying to present ourselves well. So I think for, for perpetrators, I think that I've often found that they want me to think that they're good people in my perception, that they'll often tell me stories about rescuing victims, even without me asking those questions. And I think that is that does arise from the desire of wanting to present a positive image for me and perhaps even for themselves as well. Thank you, Shell. Um, <laughs> with the risk of being awkward, Aaron, did you uh, anything you want to add to that? Um, no, just again, I would I would sort of agree. I mean, I think there there are moments um, in an interview work or yeah, ethnographic encounter where it can feel performative. You know, you're trying to make a good impression. Um, you know, then the other person that you're speaking to is trying to make a good impression. These kinds of things. Um, but yeah, I mean, overall. Um, I guess as an oral historian, I mean, when we talk about co-production, what we're really talking about is kind of trying to share authority and, and recognize the ways in which the researcher shapes the narrative by virtue of the questions that they ask um, and how they're sort of received by the person they're interviewing and, and the disciplinary training they have and these kinds of things. But, you know, likewise, um, the interviewee um, in this case would also be, you know, shaping the the interview by virtue of how they choose to respond um, as informed by, you know, a whole bunch of factors that are taking shape around them, their cultural circuit, the political climate, their, you know, conversations that have been happening in the public sphere around them recently, that kind of thing. Thank you, Aaron. And um, I did want to, you know, take the opportunity to ask each of you about your individual contributions to the volume. And Sheldon, can you talk for a bit about perpetrator imaginaries and how the different representations included in your chapter differ and connect? Yeah, I mean, I think in my chapter, one of the things I do is I use Jean Paul Sartre's analogy of a cube, which is basically that when we look at a cube, we're only seeing one side of the cube. And Sartre also said that when we look at a piece of art, that rather than perceiving the art, we're actually prescribing values towards the art. And in a sense, we're bringing our own perspective to the art and interpreting the art in light of that lens. So when I was talking about imaginaries, I had this in mind, and I'm thinking of how we how we look at a perpetrator, how we perceive a perpetrator really uh, comes from our relationship with the perpetrator in terms of how they connect to us personally and in terms of our in terms of our um, in terms of our role, I suppose. So there is this act of ascription that happens that that can actually prevent us from accurately seeing the perpetrator. So, I mean, in my chapter, I, I, I describe several paradigmatic types, I guess, of perspective on the perpetrator from the researcher to the artist, uh, to the legal system, to, to victims, to perpetrators themselves, for example, and how these perspectives might differ and how they're all informed, again, by this kind of instrumental perspective. Thank you. Thank you, Shell. And Aaron, for your uh, contribution, I, I was curious about um, what was most and least surprising about your interviews and research in Rwanda. 
um, and you know what commonalities you may have uh, you know, identified. And then also, can you tell our listeners about Devota as well as gender-based discrimination more broadly? And, and then finally, um, I was wondering if it ever you ever contemplated whether Devota convinced you of her version of the events that you discussed with her. Mm. Yeah, um, I mean, I think for me, um, probably the most surprising thing from the interviews was how seldom um, the people that I worked with actually acknowledged any kind of, um, you know, strong sort of ethnic um, hatreds or anti-Tutsi sentiments. Um, because I think like a lot of people um, at the time, you know, who were, who were looking at Rwanda, reading about Rwanda, both in the media and in, in terms of, you know, scholarship, um, I really had this sense that, you know, if people perpetrated, committed genocide related crimes, it was because they, you know, had this deep seated hatred of the Tutsi. Um, and, you know, that may have been the case for some of them, um, especially I think often the more sort of high level official, you know, insiders of the genocide, they'd really internalized this ideology that, that saw the Tutsi as a threat and, and all sorts of other negative things. But a lot of the, the sort of more low level perpetrators that I interviewed and the ones who were often on the front lines of the killing um, didn't typically cite that as a reason why they would have participated. Um, you know, they talked about anger, they talked about frustrations um, with the Rwandan Patriotic Front, which was um, a political party and a, and a military group that had invaded Rwanda in 1990, um, years before the genocide, and who a lot of people were frightened of. You know, so there were there were moments where, you know, ethnicity kind of started to figure into it. But um, yeah, it, it just, the motivations weren't always what I expected. So, I mean, that was probably... The thing that surprised me the most, um, in terms of Devota, yeah, I mean, she was a really interesting individual for me. Um, so she was one of the women that I interviewed who had contributed to genocide-related crimes, um, and she had this horrible reputation uh, within the prison um, because she'd allegedly um, killed um, children using a brochette, which is like the the stick that they use to grill meat um, in Rwanda. Um, and there are all sorts of rumors about, you know, she was this monstrous person who'd, who'd done all these horrible things. Um, and yet she insisted that, you know, these allegations had been made up by somebody who, who basically wanted to punish her, um, that she, she'd never really committed any crimes related to the genocide, except, you know, informing on, on people who were in hiding, you know, these kinds of things. And, and she really felt that she'd been a victim of um, gender-based discrimination in addition to interpersonal conflict, um, and that part of the reason that she'd been arrested, that she was, you know, going through Gachacha, which is the um, grassroots trials that they held in Rwanda to deal with perpetration um, of the genocide, you know, that, that a lot of this came from the fact that that she was a woman um, who was accused of these kinds of crimes, and in doing so then was seen as very much someone who is transgressing appropriate gender norms for, for Rwandan women um, at that point in time. Um, so yeah, I mean, our, our conversations were really, really interesting for, for those reasons. Um, in terms of whether she ever convinced me that, you know, she was innocent, that she hadn't committed these crimes, um, to be honest, I don't know. And I, I still don't know, um, whether she really did these things or whether she really was just a victim of interpersonal conflict and so on. Um, for me, our conversations were more about trying to analyze um, the meaning that she associated with the genocide, you know, being prosecuted in the manner that she was um, and what this could sort of teach people about um, the nature of transitional justice in Rwanda and prospects for social repair. Um, because that, that question of, you know, does she, did she actually commit these crimes or was she innocent? Um, 
I, I just, I'm not sure it would ever really be possible to, um, to answer with any degree of reliability. For sure. Um, and I just remember, you know, from the book, the, you know, the horrific nature of the accusations and, um, yeah. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Um, my, you know, I, one of the things I think your book, I mean, in addition to everything we've already talked about, um, what a huge uh, contribution it makes, I think can be found in this, this code of practice, um, you know, that you developed. Can you tell our listeners about the questions you developed for research design, fieldwork, and analysis and dissemination of perpetrator research? Sure. Uh, I mean, I think that the code of practice really arose from from this realization that Aaron and I had when we started doing perpetrator research that there wasn't such a thing out there. I mean, there were code of practice and there were methodological texts, of course, on doing qualitative research and doing interviewing in general. But in terms of perpetrators specifically and some of the, the particular considerations that we've talked about in this interview, it just didn't really exist. So we, the code of practice is, is trying to set out especially I think the questions that researchers need to ask themselves as they're embarking on perpetrator research and as they're doing perpetrator research. So we really go into every stage of the research process from research design to actually conducting interviews or whatever method you're using to what happens afterwards in terms of data protection. And crucially thinking about uh, our local interlocutors as we often have in this kind of research and, and how I think they're often overlooked as well in terms of research ethics and ensuring that they are also protected as much as possible from adverse consequences. So the code of practice, in a sense, it's setting out some guidelines, but at the same time, I think it's very much a starting point for further elaboration. Thank you, Kel. Anything to add to that, Aaron? No, just um, to really highlight that, yeah, it's intended to be a starting point um, due to a, a kind of lack of guidance about the specific challenges that um, can emerge when people are doing this kind of research. And so the expectation is that hopefully, I mean, people who want to do research, qualitative research with perpetrators read it, but then they also adapt it and they make it work um, not only for their own sort of style as researchers, but for the specific, you know, cultural and political context in which they plan to do this research. So, um, yeah, I mean, one of the things we were really hoping with this conclusion is that it would sort of help to give rise to, um, you know, further conversation, further publications and so on that are that are taking it and, and tweaking it and adapting it and, um, and challenging it even. Um, for for different contexts. Thank you. And um, it came up a little bit in in what the two of you just described. But you know, I've, I've read a number of books recently about um, you know, transitional justice mechanisms and um, both in informal and in sorry informal and formal settings. And uh, so I did want to ask a, a specific question um, about uh, translation and transcription. And so can you talk about the ethical and methodological, methodological challenges associated with translation, transcription, uh, the issue of compensation? I know Shell already mentioned about personal and data security and, and the di- dissemination and self-censoring. Yeah, maybe I'll, I'll take a first crack at this one. But I, I mean, I think... I think translation, pardon me, I think that um, interpretation is really crucial in the interview process. And a a lot of researchers obviously don't speak the languages that they're dealing with. I mean, it it would be ideal if they did. And and so one of the questions is really what is lost in that process of translation. But 
Also concretely, if you have an interpreter or research assistant with you during an interview, how does that affect the interview? Because in the case of an interpreter, of course, they're, they're effectively acting as a medium between what you're asking and what the respondent is returning to you. So I think that's a really crucial question to think about how interpreters play a role in that process, how they might be perceived by research subjects, and also moving to kind of the next stage of things after things are translated and transcribed. And when you start using data directly in your research, especially if you're quoting your interview subjects, are you quoting what they're saying faithfully? And I don't just mean accurately. I mean, are you capturing the meaning of what they're trying to tell you? For example, if you're taking something from minute three of an interview putting in an ellipsis and then taking something from minute 23 of an interview that could really reshape the idea that you're communicating uh, within your findings. So I, I think all of this is important in considering the role of interpreters and translators. Thank you, Shell. Erin, did you want to add anything? Um, yeah, maybe just to sort of highlight as well. Um, I mean, I think, I think especially around working with different types of, say, research assistants or collaborations with researchers in these different contexts, um, I mean, really within the field, we need to be talking about this a lot more and we need to be hearing from the researchers and the research assistants upon, you know, who make this research possible for, in so many contexts um, because, you know, they often face heightened challenges um, especially when they're sort of of the communities um, that are that are being researched um, and working then with with foreign researchers who maybe don't have that not just linguistics fluency but um, cultural fluency, you know um, the mistakes that we make in in doing this kind of research. I mean, they can have professional consequences um, for foreign researchers. You know, um, I've, I've I know instances where people have been deported and had other problems, but. Those, those problems are, are heightened often for the local researchers, the research assistants and so on, who make this research possible. Um, and, and we need to be talking about this. We need to also be really comprehensively considering how these risks might be heightened. And again, whether there's anything within our power that we can do to help mitigate those in the, in the hopefully unlikely event that you know, these problems become a reality for them. So yeah, that's something I'd like to see the field talk about a lot more. Definitely. And I, I think there's also a question of, of course, of authorship and of power in all these relationships. That I mean, there are research assistants and then there are research assistants. And some research assistants really play a, an absolutely crucial role in research, including in terms of the development of ideas and analyzing data and all these things. And often they're shut out of getting credit for that research as well. So it, it's it's something that I think we need to think think about definitely. Thank you both. And um, you know, as we sort of wind down our, our conversation, um, some of the things that you just mentioned um, do connect to thinking about the future of the field. And so I wanted to ask, um, and, and Shell, you already mentioned a, a chapter on North America, but if this were a two volume set, um, what would you want to be in the second volume? And, and related to that, where should perpetrator research go from here? Well, I mean, I think, I think for me, um, absolutely, I would say not just one chapter on sort of indigenous genocides, white settler colonialism. Um, I, I would actually like to see a whole volume just on that, because I think it's a really important area of study that, um, you know, isn't, isn't often getting considered when we talk about not just genocide, but then, you know, perpetrators of genocide. Um, so I would say that's absolutely essential. But likewise, um, 
I would like to see more sort of amplification of the voices and experiences of the people who work as, again, researchers, research assistants, and so on in these different conflict-affected settings, because I think there's a really, really important conversation to be had um, around people for whom these settings are not just where they go to do fieldwork, but they also constitute a kind of home for them. So either they're citizens or, you know, they're perceived as insiders um, to varying degrees and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I'd like to see a war work um, in that regard as well. Thank you, Aaron. Michelle, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I mean, I think I think one of the things that uh, that is also missing from the field is a broader perspective on, on perpetrators. And I'm, I think there's a lot of focus on violence and a lot of focus particularly on killing. But I'm also thinking of other forms of perpetration here, whether it be in something like a cultural genocide or whether it be just other aspects of genocide, you know, under Article 2 of the Genocide Convention, like the prevention of births or forced sterilization or the forcible removal removal of children. I think these are relatively missing from the literature, and that does distort the literature on genocide in certain directions, including the methodological literature. Mm, absolutely. Sure. And, um, you know, as I mentioned, uh, when we were talking before we started here, uh, you know, Shell contributed to a, a volume that I edited on cultural genocide. Um, and I, I am just, I, you know, it did raise a question for me. Um, do you see this also changing? You, you mentioned, um, you know, the, um, the presence of perpetrator research and genocide studies has, has grown. Um, do you see also changing greater tension to um, you know, the other um, acts of genocide included in our, our, under Article 2 beyond mass killing? I think there's a little bit more attention to that, but it's still, I would say it's still pretty marginal within the field. I mean, I think sexual violence now has has really come into the conversation around genocide, you know, still surprisingly recently. But I think the other acts, broadly speaking, like the prevention of births and forced sterilization, all these kinds of things, I think that is still very much underrepresented in the literature. I think there's really a long way to go there. I mean, I think when we look at really contemporary cases like like Myanmar, for example, I think that we do see that diverse methods are used to execute genocides. And so I, I think it's important, not just in terms of the the social and historical research, but even in terms of the legal side of things that we start taking account of how these forms of genocide contribute to genocidal processes or how they constitute genocide just on their own. Yeah, agreed. Thank you. Erin, did you want to add anything? No, no. I mean, I, I, I agree with all of that. So, yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, well, Shell and Aaron, I, I've taken up uh, you know a good amount of your time today, um, and again, uh, this is uh, a question that Shell's already begun to answer. But can the two of you tell our audience about um, anything that you're currently working on? Anything we should keep our eyes out for? Um, well, I mean, at the moment, I'm um, working on a, a book, a co-authored book with my colleague, Annie Pullman, um, who's based at the University of Brisbane in Australia. Um, and it's focusing actually on um, symbolic acts of violence that occur amid genocide. So um, not just, again, you know, physical killings or acts of torture, but, you know, dehumanizing language and um, attacks on heritage sites and these kinds of things. Um, so that's that's actually very much where my research is moving at the moment um, with regards to genocide studies. Um, but it'll be 
a little while, I think, before we see anything in print or um, appearing online. Um, yeah. And big project. Uh, the big project I'm working on now, as I, I mentioned earlier in the interview, is a book on Dominic Nguyen. And it's not just a book on the trial. In fact, I think the trial might be about 40% or less of the final book. I mean, we'll see. But it's, it's actually a book on his life. So I talk to many people, I interview many people who know Dominic Nguyen, you know, all the way back to when he was a child, before he was abducted, right up until now, people who are working on his trial on, on every side of the trial. I was going to say both sides, but there are actually three sides because there's prosecution defense and there's also victims counsel in trials of the International Criminal Court. Uh, so that's the big thing I'm working on now. I hope that I could complete that book this year. Well, I think I will complete it this year. I'm not sure exactly when it will come out, but that's my current big project. Well, we will look forward to uh, reading both of your future work and, and thank you for your time again and, and good luck with it and, and take care. Thank you very much. And thanks for having us. Thanks, Jeff.